Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And I'm joined once again by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yurashami. You know, our last show was on March 25th. We had a two-week gap, and I'd like to take a moment to explain why. First, two weeks ago was Holy Week for us Catholics and Passover for my Jewish colleague. Also, that Monday of Holy Week, I came down with COVID. My situation worsened throughout the week to the point where I was admitted to the hospital on Easter Sunday. I had, uh, unfortunately, contracted COVID pneumonia. I spent four days in the hospital. I was on oxygen. I received antiviral medication via IV and steroids. On day one, I was on six liters of oxygen, and by day four, I was completely off oxygen. The medical profession now has quite workable and successful protocols and treatments. In fact, I wish more people knew that and, and were aware of that. So, you know, how has my ordeal then changed my view, if at all, on all these legal challenges that we've had to these tyrannical COVID restrictions? And I can tell you, you know, unequivocally, it hasn't changed a bit. You know, I'm 100% committed to fighting this tyranny, which in my view is creating collateral damage that is far worse than the virus. You know, we need to take back our country and we need to take back our freedoms from these left-wing tyrants who, as you know, they say it all the time, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Well, they're certainly making best they can of, uh, of the COVID. And now, let me talk about this, the virus, because this, this is something that uh, has been bothering me from the, uh, really from the beginning. Right? And this is the Wuhan virus. Make no mistake about it. Um, as you could probably imagine, I'm pretty mad about uh, of all of this. And I'm thoroughly convinced that this was a biological weapon that was released by China. Could have been accidental. Could have been a very successful trial balloon. But I, you know, one thing that I think uh, our listeners need to understand and, and make no mistake, China's an evil empire. Right? They, they exist for nothing short of world domination. And unfortunately, they now have their puppet, Joe Biden, uh, in place in the White House. Trump was probably one of the first to really stand up to China. And no doubt they wanted him out. And now they have China. Uh, China has the Biden family in their back, in their back pocket. So before I go on further with this, because I do want to spend some time discussing the, uh, the Wuhan virus. And there was an interesting article that was published in Fox titled Force, Former Top State Department Investigator Says COVID-19 Outbreak May Have Resulted from Bioweapon Research Accident. There's some interesting facts in there, but before we dive into that, I do want to welcome my uh, colleague, David uh, Urashami. David. Hey, Rob. Well, first of all, it's good to have you back, uh, not just a partner in American Freedom Law Center and colleague here on this podcast, but a good friend and uh, you know, no one, as you pointed out, no one in their right mind would downplay the seriousness of COVID. Um, it is a highly infectious disease and um, it can have deleterious effects across the board and fatal effects, God forbid. So um, it's good that you've pulled through and you're on the mend and I know you're doing everything it takes to get those lungs back at 100%. Uh, having said that, uh, I also think it's correct to say that um, China as the source of this uh, disease, and we all, I think now it's, it's fairly well consensus. Remember what we said before, and this links us to all of our previous podcasts, 
Science qua science simply measures things and can determine the statistical probabilities of events occurring as a result of cause and effect. And while they don't, scientists can't really pinpoint cause and effect, they certainly can statistically analyze correlation. If something happens and then something else happens and pretty much everything else is held constant, scientists can draw certain conclusions about um, correlation and effectively causation. What science does not do is measure risk um, or public policy decisions about benefits versus risk, nor can it really pinpoint in any real way um, the absolute source of a disease because it's something that happened in the past. What science can do is analyze and reduce the overall possibilities so that they can come to likely conclusions. So let's talk about the source of the disease for a minute. So initially, it wasn't absolutely clear that Wuhan was the source. It was the first known outbreak of the disease. And keep in mind, China hid the original outbreak. The communist government did not disclose it to the world when they first knew. Now, if you want to um, play games, you can say, well, um, it was only because they weren't certain that they were suffering from such an outbreak. Um, but then that touches upon the point that Rob made. And that is China, communist China, um, which comes out of, you know, all of the Chinese Marxist doctrine is about world domination. Now, one could have said that's true of the Soviet Union. It's not likely true of Russia, although um, Putin as the kind of petty tyrant that he is, although he certainly has some global weapons at his disposal, and he uses assassination all the time to eliminate enemies and to threaten others, um, is really more about building his own wealth for when he finally does leave office, but, um, and about his own little power fiefdom. It's not about world domination. China is about world domination, whether it's going to be militarily, whether it's going to be economically, uh, whether it's going to be culturally. I don't think they have a much of a chance culturally, but they certainly have one economically and um, they clearly have one um, when it comes to military domination. But once we knew that this came from China, then the question became, what was its source? Was it simply the fact that China, as in many respects, still a third world country, has these um, ant live animal markets um, where people and animals mix in rather uh, unsanitary conditions in ways that these kinds of uh, diseases can mutate and transfer from animal to man? Or was this the product, accident or purposeful, of a military lab in which the United States was actually outsourcing some of its um, research because it was illegal to conduct in the United States? Um, 
And that question was an open question. I don't think we had enough information early on. There was a scientist, a Chinese scientist who left. I don't know a lot of her background. She was on Tucker Carlson on Fox News a lot. She's apparently published in some peer reviewed journals. And it was her thesis that in fact, um, COVID-19 came as a result of a release from the Wuhan lab, that they were working on the same kind of genetic materials and that there was release. Now she wouldn't have known, and I don't ever know her to be saying that it was done purposefully or accidentally. What she did say was that it was being covered up and that's clear. Chinese government, we all know that governments generally cover things up. Our government covers them up by calling them top secret, right? So that they don't get released. And we find oftentimes that top secret um, material and documentation and information that the US government labels as such turns out to not be top secret. It's only embarrassing to the government. China certainly has done that in this case. And it's made manifest or demonstrated by the fact that when the um, WHO, the World Health Organization, WHO, um, supposedly went in to, to do their ultimate analysis on the source of this, came out with a study which was even the Biden administration um, acknowledges was simply woefully inadequate, um, came out with a study that said, it was more likely to have been transmitted by animal and probably not likely to have been transmitted from the, the laboratory, which is just nonsense. That's non-language to articulate um, enough so that the media can um, trumpet the fact that this wasn't a Chinese virus um, because they fear that labeling something a Chinese virus, even though we call other viruses by their national origins, right, Ebola, the Spanish flu, uh, but apparently in our new woke world, you can't call something a Chinese virus. Once we have seen that study and we've seen the cover-up, the concerted cover-up by China, which would not permit the WU organization the, or the World Health Organization from really examining the facts, that raises a whole new level of analysis. That is, now that we know that it, the virus originated in China, the question becomes, was it animal related? Meaning, did it just happen in, in the marketplaces? Or did this lab, having developed this virus from animals, engage in some research and that was accidentally transmitted to one of their scientists or research staff and then spread? Or was there a purposeful inoculation or purposeful infection of um, some member of their staff and then it was released into the world that way as a biological weapon? I'm not there yet, not that it couldn't be, but it's clear to me that because of the cover-up that the Chinese government continues to operate under and the, and the attempt to turn this into a um, natural marketplace animal infection, um, my view is that today there's enough evidence to establish that it is most likely um, to have come from the laboratory. Otherwise, the Chinese government would have opened up all the data. 
and it is now it is now possible within the realm of not just possibilities, but the realm of a likely possibility that this research was aimed at a biological weapon. I still don't know enough to know that this would have been a purposeful release or non-purposeful release. But as you pointed out to me, Rob, on the phone the other day, the fact that once this virus was let loose, the Chinese government and maybe you can remind me because I'm now drawing a bit of a blank in terms of the travel that was allowed. Right. Yeah. They, they, sh they uh, shut down domestic travel within the area, but then they opened up the international travel. So essentially you had these individuals who were infected were, were human missiles, right. With a, with a weapons platform, part of their, <laughs> part of their biology with their, these infected individuals. And they, they, you know, let them out amongst the world, including in Italy and in New York city and all these major, these uh, major cities and, and European countries, they opened up their, their international travel. You know, one, one of the things I want to emphasize. Can I just jump in on that real yes. quick? Yes. And, and think about that. So um, now some people would say, how could you imagine a government infecting its own people and risking this broad-based infection, even if they wanted to, um, you know, shoot these human missiles? Well, the fact is, is we know that our government the CDC was involved in research with African-Americans in the South where they were told they were getting, you know, this free government medical care. And in fact, they were not treating them for syphilis and they were following them over the years to see, you know, how they got sick and died versus people who did get treated and they were never told about it. So the fact that governments can, can engage in this kind of tyrannical behavior uh, is not surprising. Now, that's the US government. Now compare that to the Chinese government that has absolutely no accountability to the people, just to the Communist Party big shots. That they and and no regard for human life. I mean, my goodness, they have that abortion policy there and, and talk about human rights violations. My gosh, China. I, I mean, I, I, I understand the study you referred to previously in the CDC, but I, it's not even not even close to comparable United States to China. Agreed. I don't even want to, I don't even want to to be insinuated in in this conversation. China and is I, an evil empire that. who cares yeah. less about human life, including the the human lives of the individuals that live in underneath their regime. Half the people, you know, they've got people that are starving to death that are part of the uh, of them, but they don't care. I mean, they I, want I'll, they I'll want accept that demand. chastisement on making the comparison. And in fact, the argument by the U.S. government was, well, these men would not have. Um, engaged in um, healthcare, generally speaking. So they were, it wasn't as if the US government infected them, which they didn't. But having said that, um, the Chinese government, as you point out, which limits family size and then has essentially a, a euthanasia program to keep their population at bay so that they can have um, uh, economic growth without overpopulation. They measure that very carefully. The fact that they would, um, the possibility that they would have infected a relatively small percentage of their people with this disease and then sent others infected um, around the world to infect the world and have an enormous impact in a positive sense, ultimately on their uh, economy, uh, is not out of the realm of real possibility. Again, I'm not there yet. Uh, to draw that conclusion, but it it is, I think, more reasonable than not to 
conclude that this virus did come from that lab and it was either accident or purposeful. And I will uh, hold that ultimate conclusion at bay for now. So, so one of the points I want to make, I know we keep talking about science, but you and I are lawyers. Right? And so when you look at evidence and, you know, we have rules of evidence in courts of law for a reason so that you can, you can trust what the facts are that are going to, that are going to establish, you know, what the facts are for the case. And so you have direct evidence, right? That's, you know, you have a, a percipient witness, somebody who actually observed something take place, who can then testify to their own personal observations. But you also have circumstantial evidence. You have an, the example of, you know, you're in a, in a building, the windows are closed, you, you can't see outside, and two, three, four, five people, one right after the other, come in with wet raincoats and a wet umbrella. That's circumstantial evidence that it's raining outside. Right. It, and, and circumstantial evidence is just as admissible as admissible as direct evidence. So you have so when you start building up this case of circumstantial evidence, it starts to become over overwhelming, in my view, in many respects. And the other thing is, you, know, you mentioned about the cover up and that World Health Organization. They they were de- that investigation. They were denied the critical scientists who had the direct evidence. They didn't have access to them and they were denied direct access to the locations and parts of the facility where that evidence would come from. Now, you and I both know in, in, in a court of law, particularly like in a civil case, if you have somebody that's destroying evidence or hiding evidence, you know, the judge can give an instruction on the jury said, look, you can presume then that that evidence, that there is a, a, a negative presumption to that evidence. And that just makes common sense. And that was the point I was making. And, I, and, and, to, and to draw that um, analogy about the, the, the raincoats and the umbrellas, they're wet. Is it possible that someone could make the argument that, uh, well, the guy was walking in with his umbrella and raincoat because he was going to store it in his office and a fire hydrant burst open and it became wet. And so it really wasn't raining. That's not a ultimate conclusion. And again, when you're dealing with evidence, scientific or legal, and oftentimes it's both in our world, Occam's razor comes to the fore. The simplest explanation is typically the best explanation. So when a guy walks in and his umbrella and his raincoat is soaking wet, yes, you come up with all sorts of, you know, hypothetical possibilities, but the simplest, most reasonable one is that it's raining. Now the same holds true with cases of China or Hunter Biden and um, you know Russia Gate and Obama administration's involvement of that. It's always possible to come up with conspiracy theories, and we use that now in a pejorative sense, meaning a negative way. And someone who said, you know, who someone said, well, the U.S. government planned 9/11. It's possible, and the answer to those kinds of queries. Uh, rhetorical as they may be, is, well, it's possible that there's green men and cheese on the Mars, but that's not the simplest explanation. The simplest explanation here is that it was Chinese lab in Wuhan that started this and that the Chinese government at the very least was guilty and has been guilty and continues to be guilty of a cover-up. And that cover-up, as Rob points out, in a court of law, where due process is preeminent and logic as well. If someone is consciously covering up a crime, 
it is more than likely the simplest answer is because he or she is covering up a crime that they're responsible for. And indeed, not but a, about a year and a half ago, I was litigating a case in New York and some big real estate company was suing one of its agents who started off on their own. And they were claiming, you know, she stole all of their proprietary information. And so when I sought discovery of their computer emails, they destroyed their computers. And lo and behold, you couldn't even find the hard drives. And when I filed my motion, the court said, there is going to be a presumption in this case that your client, Mr. Ushami, informed the plaintiff about her move, that they gave her permission, which of course they were denying and said, well, there's no evidence. Well, of course there was no evidence. The computer was destroyed. The simplest explanation for that destruction was that the plaintiff, the big real estate company had something to hide. And the same holds true here. Right. Let me, let me, I want to go to some of the details of this uh, Fox News article because I found it very, uh, very interesting. And this is the, uh, the State Department's former lead investigator who oversaw the task force into the COVID-19 virus origin told Fox News that he not only believed the virus escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but that it may have been the result of research that the Chinese military or the People's Liberation Army was doing as a bioweapon. So the Wuhan Institute of Virology is not the Institute of Health. It was operating a secret classified program. And he said in his view is that it was a biological weapons program. He believes the Chinese Communist Party had, has been involved in a massive cover up during the past 14 months. And we know, I mean, we know from the World Health Organization report that there was in fact a cover up. And he goes on to say, this is, a, this is to me, when you, when you really think about this, boy, this hits home. He said, if you believe as I do that this might've been a weapon vector gone awry, not deliberately released, but regardless, gone awry or deliberately released, right. the fact that they were working on this, on this virus, and it had the, that special gain of function, right, which was something that they were, they were manipulating these viruses. And in fact, it's illegal to do here in the U.S., which is why in, in, you know, we had actually some research that was going on at this same lab because of the, uh, this gain of function. He said, but in developing and then somehow leaked has turned out to be the greatest weapon in history. He said, think about this. It's taken out 15 to 20% of global GDP, killed millions of people. And he, and he made this point too, the Chinese population has barely been affected and their economy roared back to being number one in the entire G20. This thing has been more devastating than if you unleashed nuclear weapons. I mean, you think about it, how much GDP loss and the number of lives lost. And he goes on to say, motive, cover-up, conspiracy, all the hallmarks of guilt are associated with this. And the fact that the initial cluster of victims surrounded the very institute that was doing the highly dangerous, if not dubious, research is significant. He said, at first, China said the COVID-19 virus was originally in the Wuhan seafood market. But the problem with China's theory the first case had no connection to the market. Last fall, the U.S. obtained intelligence that indicates there was an outbreak among several Wuhan lab scientists with flu-like symptoms that left them hospitalized in November of 2019. November, before China reported the first case. And he goes on to say, in 2007, China announced it would begin work on genetic bioweapons using controversial gain-of-function research to make the viruses more lethal. 
couple of more main points. You said, Bob, we've looking at that, let me just jump yeah. in. So to me, this is not surprising. And now that we have some facts um, to support what one could imagine in the way of conjecture, it now becomes realistic theorizing. But what to me is the most important and telling fact of all of this is the World Health Organization, an organization consisting of the world's greatest scientists when it comes to these kinds of issues, engaged hand in hand with the Chinese cover-up because their report doesn't say, well, Chinese, China is covering this up. Their report pretends as though the documents and access to scientists and locations that they didn't have was, you know, a parenthetical that they were able to conclude most likely came from an animal market and not likely coming from the lab without any scientific basis whatsoever to the point that even as I noted earlier, the Biden administration is willing to criticize the World Health Organization. And let me just lead from that point quickly to a point about Donald Trump. Donald Trump recognized this incredible shortcoming, failure, corruption of the World Health Organization and indeed of many of these so-called health organizations, public health organizations. And he made this fairly clear that he was not going to participate in the WHO as long as this kind of behavior continued. Biden administration immediately reversed that, at least in speech. And I was reading over the, um, the last few days, someone sent me something, a query from someone from a conservative news uh, magazine. I won't name the name because then it'll become known. And a, a former publisher of this news magazine wanted some legal help. And so I, I provided some resources for him. And in the course of doing so, I want to know who this guy was. So I looked him up and he was one of the guys in the 2016 period from this conservative inside the Beltway news magazine that was an anti-Trumper, a never-Trumper. And his argument was, well, Trump, you know, he's just this narcissistic businessman. And his main criticism was, we don't know what he is. And it's clear that he has no experience in foreign affairs or in immigration, one of our two main issues as conservatives. Well, guess what? The two things that Trump got better than any other president, I think, in the history of this country were foreign affairs, how to deal with our enemies and our allies and organizations like the World Health Organization and immigration. We see that now in spades with the way the Biden administration has failed in the latter. And on the former, it's failing on a continuing basis, engaging Iran, uh, ignoring the incredible advances that uh, the Trump administration made in the Middle East vis-a-vis -vis Israel and the Palestinians by locking out the Palestinians and supporting Israel strongly, which would force the Palestinians' hands at some point. Uh, they're back to engaging in the Obama um, modus operandi, which is, you know, our allies are, you know, our allies, but our enemies, they're really our friends. 
and we just need to engage with them and send them suitcases and, and crates full of American cash. Unbelievable. Let me just, let me wrap up this uh, story because this I think was an interesting point that this, uh, this expert made um, from the State Department. He said the Chinese stopped talking publicly about the research into coronavirus disease vectors, which could be used for weapons in 2017. At the same time, its military began funding the research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And he goes on to say, I doubt that's a coincidence. Yeah. Right. And the, the story makes the point that we've been making as well, that when they, the World Health Organization did their investigation, they were denied access to the critical scientists who had the personal knowledge that would have been able to address this issue, as well as the data, the pertinent data as to um, whether or not the virus came from this particular laboratory, which then, you know, makes this, this report is, is absolutely useless. And actually it's worse than that. It's a cover up. And again, that to me is more evidence of the fact that this was a biological weapon. Um, and again, whether it was just, you know, came out accidentally, or it was some sort of a trial balloon, who knows, but uh, China is the evil empire. So that, uh, I want to wrap that up on the, on the Wuhan virus. You know, I wanted to, uh, I want to do a quick uh, election recap, which was the, one of the things we covered during our last uh, podcast. And we discussed how the, you know, the left stole the 2020 general election and how they plan to continue stealing elections well into the future. We reviewed in particular HR1, which I described as exhibit one in showing that this past election was stolen because HR1 makes legal as a matter of federal law, much of the tactics that are employed by the left during this last election that were illegal as a matter of state law. You know, the, the American people, we demand fair and honest elections. If we don't have fair and honest elections, we don't have credible governance. We just don't. And, and I think if HR1 becomes a law and, I, and I, who knows where this, this thing, this is uh, sitting, hopefully it does not pass through the Senate. But I'm hoping it will be successfully challenged in, in many ways. But if it's not, it'll ensure that voter fraud will be, will be rampant. You know, here's one of the things, and this goes back to, right, we hear all the time, oh, there's no evidence of fraud. There's no evidence of fraud, right? That's what they keep, we keep hearing that time and time again. But as we mentioned, evidence can be direct evidence. Evidence can be circumstantial evidence. There are many things. And, and as we mentioned in the last podcast, even in, uh, you know, the filing we did in the Michigan Supreme Court, which was eventually denied 4-3, contained 30 plus affidavits of percipient direct, you know, direct witnesses, direct evidence of, uh, of election malfeasance going on here in Michigan. But this whole thing with what they're, what they're trying to do with these mail-in ballots and getting, literally getting rid of every safety and security measure, right? Here in Michigan, we mentioned in the prior podcast, our, um, our Secretary of State, because they flooded the, the election process with, uh, with absentee ballots. I think it was like 3.3 million in Michigan. Huge. And you think Trump only lost by 150 some odd thousand. She issued guidance essentially saying, eh, to ignore the signatures, right? Presume they're all valid. They're all correct. And that was illegal. That was illegal guidance. And, and to me, this is like, you know, if the government told every bank right out there, open up all your vaults, get rid of all your security people, tell everybody to leave from the bank, shut off all your security cameras, leave the front doors wide open. You know, you can keep everything wide open, get everybody cleared out of the way. And then, you know, miraculously in the middle of the night, all of a sudden there's a lot of money missing. Do you think for a minute that that money wasn't stolen? What they've done is they've essentially, and what they're trying to do through HR1 and what the left did in this last election, they took out every safety measure in place to ensure that 
the election would not would not be stolen to ensure that these absentee ballots and mail-in ballots were valid. They just remove them all. So in the example of the bank, do we have direct evidence? Unless somebody actually saw somebody walk in and steal it, no. But what's the likelihood that the money was stolen? It didn't just get up and walk out on its own because all these safety measures are taken out. The left wants to remove every measure. Right? We see it in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, my goodness. Right? They, the all-star game is not going to be played there. Joe Biden's calling these you know, election uh, laws that they put in place Jim Crow laws. It's so absurd and it's so offensive. In fact, those types of comments are so racist because you think minorities can't figure out how to get a proper signature and get an ID and do things that need to be done to ensure that these elections are, that these elections are valid. It's unbelievable what the left is getting away with. And it's, and it's you know, it's, quite frankly, it's, it's very frightening. You wonder if we're going to have a... Uh, you know, have a, a valid election going forward if these, if these types of measures and all they are are measures to remove any way to ensure that the ballots are secure, to ensure that the ballot is valid, to ensure that the person who's voting is a, is a legitimate voter and only voted once in this election, in the elections. I mean, it's, it's really gotten, the, it's gotten that bad. But, they, you know, they call these things Jim Crow laws. I mean, it's so offensive that they, they keep playing this, uh, this race card on the, on the election stuff. And, you know, obviously I'm not a minority, but if I were, I'd be totally offended. So you don't, you don't think I can figure out how to, to, to register to vote and go vote? Seriously? You think I'm that stupid that I can't do this? This is what the left is telling you. This is what the left is telling all the minorities out there. I don't get it why they, where they, they continue to vote for these knuckleheads that uh, who all they want to do is just gain power and, and keep people oppressed, including minorities. Well, you know, Rob, it, Everything you say resonates with me. Uh, the, the difference might only be that I'm surprised it hasn't moved along more quickly uh, and further down um, to what we've described as this non-kinetic civil war into the Second Amendment situation, which of course no one would want or desire. Um, but uh, when you shut down effectively the ability for almost half the country on the conservative side from having a meaningful vote. And when you shut down their speech on major social media camp uh, uh, modalities, media, and when you create an environment in which it is nearly impossible to articulate conservative Judeo-Christian ideas without being censored, fired, terminated, uh, dismissed, humiliated. When, you've, when you're able to control those kinds of levers in civil society, uh, individuals in that group being censored, being denied, are going to respond eventually in ways that um, are not going to be controlled through the civil system. And that's the problem. Look, um, you know, when, when you go into court and you talk about, you know, this election fraud, and as we've said in our prior podcast, this really begins uh, much earlier, the whole, you know, equal access and uh, voter access and voter you know, rights. Um, that stuff was really begun much earlier, but the real hard line beginning of the stealing 
of the 2020 election and beyond started with Russiagate, Obama administration in, in um, at least as early as the summer of 2016 prior to the election and continued after the election when President Trump was inaugurated, was uh, elected and not yet inaugurated in as president, um, the Obama administration took very, very clear steps to ruin and possibly steal his presidency through potential of impeachment. Whether they thought it out that clearly, who knows, but they certainly sought to destroy it. And they effectively did. The incredible thing is that President Trump was so effective, notwithstanding the onslaught that he received from the bureaucrats, the technocrats, the media, the social platforms, every academia uh, is, is a phenomenon in and of itself. When we would talk about Russiagate being Obama administration and Hillary Clinton campaign through the, the fake dossier, you know, people said, ah, you're a bunch of conspiratorialist conspiracy theories. When, when mentioned that Hunter Biden um, and his father uh, were gained, gaming the system illegally and certainly unethically, people said, you know, you're, you're conspiratorialist, you're making this up, you're right-wing, you know, fanatics. Uh, and the media joined in that course. Today, you can't say that the Obama administration was not very much involved in the genesis and the ongoing aspect of Russiagate. You cannot say that Hunter Biden um, wasn't gaming the system, probably illegally. And indeed, on his so-called book tour, why did, why did Hunter Biden publish an, a book about his life with drugs and, and, and sex and everything else that he was engaged in? Because he was told by his father's people, the only way you're going to get ahead, meaning stop this story, is to just get it out there and have the media play it up as uh, just another guy who you know became an addict, but he's just a victim. And now he's a great guy and no harm, no foul. And you watch the interviews uh, of Kimmel, you know, when he was on the Kimmel show and so forth, um, they literally allow him to say that he was a legitimate board of director getting paid millions of dollars because one, he graduated from Yale, he was a lawyer and he had sat on other boards, which means absolutely nothing. And moreover, he was sitting on the board of directors of these companies that were paying him millions of dollars, foreign companies paying him millions of dollars, while he admitted in his book, he was entirely addled by his crack drug addiction and couldn't remember anything. What kind of board member was he? Well, he wasn't. He was getting paid a bribe to influence his father, who was likely to become president, and certainly at the time was a very important vice president for Obama, in matters of Ukraine, et cetera. So this idea that, that arguing about election fraud is a conspiracy is nonsense. As Rob, you pointed out, the facts are there to establish um, the likelihood, if not the probability, that this is all a plan in place. HR1, as you point out, memorializes the illegal, illegal tactics of 2016. And for everyone who wants to know, it's now sitting in the Senate, soon to be taken up.
But the Senate is going to take it up because what they will do, the Democrats, will be to um, modify the rules of the Senate, which have been in place since time immemorial, um, to eliminate the filibuster. The filibuster is simply the way in which the minority can hold up new legislation in the Senate unless the majority can garner 60% of the vote to override the filibuster. And that's a safeguard. It's a safeguard because we do not believe that simple majorities on important matters, on contested matters, should prevail in this country. We are a constitutional republic. The Democrats are going to undo that. And um, that'll be the next facet of this battle. And then they'll vote SR1. And if it's modified in any way, it'll go to a committee, but it's going to come out and it's going to be like, you know, Obamacare, thousands of pages that no one read and really understands, but the Democrats understand its purposes. And so do the intelligent Republicans, a relatively smaller subset in my view, but you're going to have the memorialization of the stealing of elections ad infinitum. And then of course, you have this whole theater about packing the court. And it wouldn't surprise me. And the Republicans are now using the argument, well, Democrats, if you do that, just think the next time the Republicans are in power, what they can do with that little notion of packing the court. You wanna go from nine to 13 to give you four more justices to take control? Well, we might go from 13 to 17. And I say to the Republicans who make that argument, you're dead wrong. The Democrats do not intend for there ever to be a abdication of the power that they now have, not through abdication simply and not through the elections. That's the purpose of HR and SR1. They will never lose another major election. Isn't going to happen. And um, that will be the telling story. You know, and you, you compound all this, which, you know, we talked about the, the Wuhan virus, right? The time that it hit. I mean, it was, it was like the perfect storm to allow all these, these uh, um, you know, voting procedures they put in place with the mail-in mail ballots, the, the drop boxes, the, all those things where there was no security in place. And you just you just got to shake your head, and, and particularly again when you, you point out the fact that you know Trump was probably one of the first presidents who was standing up to China and, and bringing them to their knees, actually, and and compared to Biden, who was you know in China's hip pocket. This is all uh, very interesting. Hey, well, I want to switch. Point out, let me just say, as you yes. pointed out earlier, quoting Emmanuel Rahm, who was quoting um, someone else, um, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. Democrats, and especially the Obama administration, but the Democrats across the country and in the state level saw COVID-19 as an absolute opportunity. In fact, just jumping back to COVID-19, think about what we're now going through. Uh, the vaccine is out there. And uh, of course, they're stopping Johnson & Johnson because, gee, lo and behold, there might be some things they didn't know about it. Uh, and Again, medium and long-term, there might be things we don't know about all the vaccines. But that being said, it does appear to be, at least at the short-term, successful. So this whole thing about everybody's got to get vaccinated. So everybody's running out and getting vaccinated. And still, 
the CDC refuses to give up its power and says, hey, even if you've been vaccinated, you still have to follow all the protocols. You shouldn't eat in public, in, publicly in the restaurants. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. You must do this. You must do that. And again, the reason being, in addition to never let a good crisis go to waste, is what we've articulated here at this podcast time and again, which is government and government bureaucrats who gain levels of power greater than they had yesterday will never give those up. The same thing is true when it comes to the budget. If you give an agency a hundred bucks one year, you can bet that hundred bucks that it's never going to get reduced to 95, 90 or back to zero. It's going to go to 101, to 102, to 110. Government and bureaucrats do not accede or give up power. They simply take that power as the new status quo and search for additional power. And that's what we see with Fauci and the rest of these bureaucrats. They're simply incapable of saying. Now, if they're saying, well, there's a possibility that a person vaccinated could get the virus from someone who didn't get vaccinated in their nostrils, and it doesn't, and this is what I've heard, by the way, and it doesn't go into their own system because it Anyway, they're inoculated, so they're not going to get sick. But while it's in their nose, they might sneeze on someone who's not vaccinated. Now, what are the odds of that happening? Everything is about risk-benefit. Are they trying to reduce the odds of COVID infection to zero? If that's what they're doing, we're going to always live under these protocols like a bunch of fearful sheep. Everything is about risk and benefit. If people get vaccinated, what they should be telling everyone, in fact, they should be telling everyone this if they really want people to get vaccinated, is once you're vaccinated, folks, have at it. Feel free, feel comfortable. Is there a risk? Yes. And you'll make your own decisions, but be an adult about it. And then people would more than likely want to get the vaccine. I, for one, continue to refuse to get the vaccine, notwithstanding, uh, Rob, your illness. But uh, I know of several things. At 65, I'm relatively healthy, and thank God, and I'll just do a little plug for myself, having just done a half Ironman in Galveston, Texas. Won Maybe to it, I was going to say. Won my age group by over an hour and set the course record for my age group by over 11 minutes. So I don't think that I'm at great risk. And, and tell us what those distances are for those who may not know what a half triathlon is. So a half triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim in the ocean or a lake or something. And then you jump on your bike and you ride 56 miles. Then you jump off your bike and you run a half marathon, 13.1 miles. And my time was five hours and 41 seconds. And he also does full Ironman triathlons too. These are warm-ups, these half yeah. ones. Yeah. Coming up later in the, the one in, in Texas just this past the weekend. But yeah. not only do I don't think I have comorbidities, any real risk, um, the fact is, is I watched your treatment and the difference between the treatment of someone who has to be hospitalized today versus what it was in March and April, May of 2020 is night and day because the doctors were guessing at what they were doing. Today, they know much better the mix of drugs that you have to have, um, getting the oxygen and, and, and so forth. And so treatment is so much better so that death, fatalities, even as infections spike today in some states like uh, 
Michigan. Michigan's one. Where you were from. Even though it's spiking, fatalities aren't spiking like they did in 2020. They go up, of course, but it's no longer such an unimaginable, deadly disease. It's now very manageable. But the bureaucrats are not responding to it like that because they know that when we sue and they go into court and they tell the judge, COVID-19, death, mayhem, the judges quake in fear and say, what part of the constitution do you want us to tear up today? And that's the kind of response they expect. And what's bothering them and what bothers Fauci and why he called, for example, Tucker Carlson, a conspiratorialist the other night, when Tucker Carlson simply asked him, if we're all getting vaccinated, why are you still telling us not to go eat out in restaurants? Why are you telling us still to wear masks? And Fauci's response was, he's a conspiratorialist because they fear the public reaction to their pseudoscience. It isn't science to measure risk benefit. That's public policy. That's not science. Fauci is not talking as a scientist when he starts telling people about wearing masks and social distancing, whether it's today or a year ago. That's public policy. That's risk benefit analysis. That's not the measurement of things. Yeah, and, and get to the point of measurement. We've, we've mentioned this podcast before. We've got litigation in, uh, in Pennsylvania. It's actually it's before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit challenging their mask mandate and their contact tracing program. It was very interesting when I cross-examined their so-called expert, their health department uh, person. I asked you know, point blank, what are the objective criteria that you're going to rely upon to lift these restrictions? No clue. They have no idea. There, there is no end game to this. Right? And she couldn't even say, you know, 5% infection rate or any, no idea. They're not even thinking in those terms of how we're going to end this, this power grab because they get, they're going to lose power because of it. And I think part of, you know, they think same thing with the mask. If these things are so efficient, so effective, then open up the economy. Where everybody wear your mask, open up the economy and let's get on with it. So it, it's just, I mean, it's absurd. The mask thing to me, right, it creates this paradox because it, it continues this sense of fear and panic. You look around and everybody around you has got a mask. Right, and before it was just you go into a, you know, an airport and you might have some Asians that are wearing masks because that's kind of been part of their, their culture, I guess, there. But, but now it's like everybody has a mask. And then I mean, the other side of it is it, it doesn't, they don't, they're not as protective. So they create a false sense, they, they create almost a false sense of security too for people. You know, you can, anything well, goes as a mask. You see these little pieces of cloth or anything. I mean, it's not like everybody's wearing N95s, you know? Crazy. And, and it, it's asinine. Give you an example. I was flying back from Galveston on Tuesday. And, um, of course, the airlines have all, and the FAA have these strict restrictions. Everybody must wear a mask, right? And we've seen the stories where little two-year plus one month or three-year-olds won't wear their mask and they kick the parents off because the rule is over two years, they must wear a mask as well. So you get a, a, a toddler just the other day, a toddler with, with emotional issues that had just turned two years of age, was wearing his mask for a while, but then he got tired of it and he didn't want to wear it. It was bothering his face. It certainly bothers mine. And his parents were having a heck of a time. And the, one of the uh, flight attendants noticed and they kicked him off the plane the whole family. Now I was on the plane and there I am sitting and, you know, I have my little mask up 
But then, you know, they come along and they serve coffee and what have you. So I had my coffee and I took it down. So there I am sitting next to people all over me. And as long as you've got a drink in your hand, you're no longer infectious. I mean, what's the logic in that? Why should I then put my mask on when I've stopped drinking? In fact, if I'm drinking, I'm more likely to cough as, you know, aspirate a little bit. I'm more likely to clear my throat because I got, you know, food or something in there than, and, and infect the world than if I'm not eating or drinking. So maybe the rule should be the opposite. If you're eating or drinking, you should wear a mask figure out how to do that. And if you're not eating and drinking, you don't need to wear a mask. It makes no sense. It's a joke. And when you look at it, when I was looking around and watching people get served and all of a sudden their mask could come off. And as soon as they were done, mask back up, it just, it illustrates the silliness of it all. Yeah, and, and one last point, I, you know, I like watching sports and you know, and, and was watching the college basketball, March Madness and all that. And you watch that, you know, they, they're making the coaches apparently wear masks on the sidelines. So they have the mask on until they come up to either talk to somebody, and they, the mask comes down and they're shouting instructions to all the player. It's like, it's seriously, oh, it's crazy. Well, let me, there's one last um, minor thing that point that I wanted to address, and then we can wrap up this, wrap up this podcast, uh, just switching gears a little bit. You know what, when I was in the hospital, I happened to get a glimpse of the trial of the police officer who's charged with the death of George Floyd. Uh, we all know what happened all summer long. You know, we heard about systemic racism, systemic racism, right? We're hearing it, you know, every day today, for goodness sakes. You have these Black Lives Matter Marxists and Antifa henchmen burned down our cities across the country, attacked, in, in some cases, occupied federal buildings, right? It took over areas of cities. I mean, talk about an insurrection. I mean, this, that was an insurrection that was happening before our eyes. So during this trial, I happened to get a glimpse of the chief of police, right? Here's the, here's the direct boss of this police officer who, um, you know, who's being charged with the murder of, uh, of George Floyd, right? We know that the, the, the attorney general for Minnesota is Keith Ellison, right? The top law enforcement officer, and the state of Minnesota is an African-American Muslim. But here we have the chief of police. I know we've been here, systemic racism, systemic racism, right? Um, and here's the guy that's the direct boss, really, of this officer who, you know, apparently committed, you know, some uh, racial profiling crime against uh, George Floyd. So I look up and, you know, I was expecting to see the, uh, you know, the grand poopa of the KKK, you know, some grand knight or whatever of the KKK up there with this police department that we've been hearing all summer long was, was involved in systemic racism. And lo and behold, the chief of police was an African-American. And I'm like, what? <laughs> How could that be? I thought it was systemic racism. Yet the head of the police department, the guy who's directly responsible for the training of the officers, the hiring of the officers, the keeping the officers on duty, the guy where the buck stops is an African-American. And these guys have been lecturing to us all summer long that this was systemic racism. It is such a bold-faced lie that, I, I mean, my blood pressure is going through the roof. The chief of police is an African-American. How can there be systemic racism in that police department when the head of the police department himself is an African-American? Unless they're talking about systemic racism against whites, maybe. But I, don't, I know that's not the case. Man, I can tell you, I, my, my head exploded when I looked up and I saw that the chief of police was an African-American. 
right? The, the explosion that was going off is this whole, you know, systemic racism lie that's just being blown up once again. Well, you know, it keeps getting repeated. I get, you know, they repeat the lie enough. I think they, you know, they find there's some truth in it. But my goodness, I, I got to tell you, I was, I, was, I was so angry when I, you know, that this whole idea that this is somehow systemic racism. Are there racists out there? Of course there are. Are there people who are, you know, who are, you know, uh, anti-Semitic? Of course they are. Are there people out there who are anti-Catholic? Of course they are. Human nature, there's the people engage in sin and evil things. Is it systemic racism? Is there systemic anti-Semitism in police? No, it's not. You get some bad apples, you got a bad apple, you get rid of the bad apple. But don't tell me this is systemic racism and then we have to change our, you know, all, all of America and all of, you know, everything that we do and, and somehow, you know, feel that we're responsible for, for something that just does not exist. So I was just, while you were going through that, uh, wanted to find out, um, and I haven't had a chance to look at police chiefs or commissioners, top law enforcement officers, but I wanted to find out of the top 100 urban areas, cities and towns, the largest, um, how many were controlled by Democrats and how many were controlled by African-American. And as it turns out, um, in as of 2020, uh, political affiliation um, of the mayors were um, of the top 54, were 50 from the Democratic Party, one from the Republican Party, four from the Independent. And of those, a majority um, were black African-American mayors. So um, the fact is, is that the leadership of these cities is minority. And yet we still see whatever it is that they claim is systemic racism. Let me just take a step back um, and maybe up uh, the perspective, you know, uh, ladder, the ladder of perception. And that is, when you talk about systemic racism, at, if, you, if you give it the best possible spin, what you're simply saying is that um, uh, individuals of one group will inherently or naturally or systemically discriminate against another i.e. human nature. Now, that as a proposition is fairly bland. And the reason being is I've noted before, I think here, but I've noted um, in essays, is that as human beings, we discriminate all the time. And we discriminate on the basis of us versus them. Think about your family. I discriminate in favor of my family every day. I make sure they're well-fed, they're well-clothed, they're protected, more so than I do with my neighbor. Now, I know my neighbor. So I look after his kids if I see them out there or I can do something for them. But I'm not going to make certain that they get a, 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 a good degree and that you know they marry right and they have a good upbringing. That's not my job. My job is to take care of us, my family. So that level, and it extends out so that it's my family, my neighborhood, my co-religion peers, my fellow Jews, my nation versus another nation. 
the idea that we can articulate the view that um, we care about Americans more than we care about Canadians or Mexicans or Europeans should not be controversial. That's why you have borders. That's why you have immigration policies. That's why, for example, we shut down our borders when we figured out what was going on with the COVID virus. And that saved lives when President Trump started shutting down international flights. It's why, for example, when I flew in from Texas, I had to fill out a form, literally, I had to fill out a form that committed to quarantining myself for 14 days, 10 to 14 days when I arrived in California. Why? Because California cares more about its citizens than those outside. Otherwise, California and Texas and everyone else would have simply gotten together and, and said, we're all one big family. I don't have to quarantine if I go from LA to San Diego. Why? Because I'm a California. I'm an us once I'm inside the border. That kind of discrimination is natural. And indeed, I think it should be fairly uncontroversial to say that if you want to talk about racial discrimination, bigotry, of course it exists. But it doesn't exist any more by white people against black people than it does in countries that are controlled by black people against white people. Go to South Africa. Okay, you'll claim that they have all these years of of uh, gr you know grievances that they're now going to, as it were, uh, uh, retribute uh, in their relations with the with the white population. But that's just an excuse. The fact is is that that kind of um, discrimination um, doesn't have to necessarily be bad discrimination. I don't think California considers the quarantine rule a bad discrimination. I don't think we would normally consider immigration, legal immigration versus illegal immigration, a bad form of discrimination. But indeed, among the progressives, now think about this, that's what's happening. The idea of a country with no borders, an idea with absolutely no discrimination. So for example, if we're at war in Afghanistan, and we know that um, the most dangerous terrorist in the world is holed up in a building. And the only way to take that terrorist out without US casualties among our soldiers is send in a drone. But we know there's likely to be civilian casualties that are being used as human shields of the terrorist. From my perspective, logically, I care more about my US soldiers than I do about the Afghanistan civilians because they're Americans and they're protecting my lives and I wanna protect their lives. So if that means sending in a drone and collaterally killing innocents as it were, so be it because my soldiers are more important. My family's more important. I once wrote an essay and I'll end with this, Rob, in which um, I drew out a mental exercise. Imagine two families living one next to the other and the child on, in one family, let's call him John, was a lovely child. Handsome, sweet, adorable, intelligent, polite, everything you'd want in a child. Always reaching out to the disadvantaged and trying to help them. And at eight or nine years old, his future was clear. 
the parents, the mother um, of the same ilk, just good parents. Next door, uh, the child, John's best friend, Mike, is just the opposite. Physically unattractive, emotionally nasty, um, not very smart, um, bullies everyone he can get his hands on. Just an absolute miserable young boy. But for some reason, John, the good, smart boy, uh, befriended this Mike. Mike's parents are of his type, nasty, unattentive, um, uh, when they are attentive, mean. So the boy is clearly learning from his parents as well. Well, the two boys are out playing at the park and the good mother is there supervising as she was wont to do because the other mother wouldn't. And they were playing in the park and there's a row, a hedge of bushes around the park with an opening. And it's right around a bin and the boys are playing soccer with the ball and the ball goes bounding out of the park through the hedge hole, the hole in the hedge and into the street. The mother is tall enough to look over the hedge. The boys don't see it and they're both racing out equally to get the ball. The mother can look over the hedge and sees a huge truck barreling down. And she can only have time to reach out, extend her hand and save one of the two boys. They're both equally distant. Who is this mother going to reach out instinctively and save? Of course, she's going to save hers. And that's one story. And one can argue, well, that's her child. But she also knew that this was the better child. But if you take the other mother and you put her in the same circumstance, and she knows her child is an utter disgrace of a young boy, not worth anything, mean and nasty. He's going to grow up and become a juvenile delinquent, most likely. And the other boy who's wonderful, she's still going to save her own child because that's her child. And that is a reasonable human discrimination. It happens. And so what the left and the progressives have done is taken that notion and made it bad across the board so that you can't control immigration. Every time a white person hurts a black person, it must be discrimination. But apparently it's not discrimination when an African-American beats up a Chinese woman almost to death and says, you don't belong here. Then it's not discrimination. Then it's Trump's fault because he called it a Chinese virus. And that was an actual incident that you're referring to. Yeah. Right. You know, and it's interesting, if you look at those stats you'd mentioned about the, the mayors and the cities and, you know, the, the, the true races out there is the Democratic Party. Make no mistake about it. Right. Because I, I, I totally abide by what Martin Luther King said, you know, don't judge somebody by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Right. As you and I have discussed before, by far our favorite Supreme Court justice is Clarence Thomas has absolutely nothing to do with the color of his skin, it has everything to do with the man's character and his intellect and his judicial philosophy, right? If we could do that more, if the left could actually abide by whom they, you know, consider to be one of their supreme, you know, uh, leaders, Martin Luther King, we'd be through all this, you know? We, they, the left forces us to discriminate and separate and all this identity politics, it's, it's, it's toxic and it's bad. And we're seeing it play itself out in, in ways that are that are tearing at our country and destroying our country. And, well, let, and just, and let me, yeah, let me just yeah. bring up two examples on our own personal viewpoints. As a Catholic, and anyone who observes Catholicism around the globe, we know two things. 
I mean, you could know a lot more than two things, but two things relevant to this discussion. One, Catholics reach out and embrace for um, their religion, um, African Amer Africans, not just African-Americans, but Africans in Africa. Um, yeah, the, the faith Latinos, is growing there. Latinos it's growing there exponentially. Right, yeah. Latinos in South America. I mean, look at the way the Catholic religion embraces everyone in that way equally. And also, not having been involved in the pro-life effort in the legal world before having met you uh, 10 years ago, but now having been involved intimately with you, the one thing you can see is that the murder of babies, abortion, occurs predominantly in this country among African Americans. And um, the Catholics pro-life groups like you and our clients, um, oftentimes white <laughs> males or white nuns in that respect, um, fight tooth and nail and are willing to go to jail to protect those African-American unborn babies. Indeed, one of our clients uh, related to Martin Luther King, African-American woman, uh, devoutly um, fights for um, the unborn among all groups. Uh, so you see that in the Catholic religion, there's no creating of victims or discrimination in that respect. In the Jewish religion, um, we have any number of very dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jews, Sephardic Jews from Arab countries, Black Jews from Ethiopia, Black Jews who have converted uh, here in the United States. When uh, I lived in Crown Heights and still have a home there, um, African-Americans who were exposed to Chabad Lubavitch and the Lubavitch Rebbe's philosophy of love and, 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 and openness um, embraced it and converted. And there's no discrimination. You don't, you simply don't have that in um, these two major religions. If you're um, a Jew born as a Jew or you're converted, the color of your skin simply doesn't matter. Where do you see the discrimination? Well, you saw the discrimination among secular Israelis when they founded the country against Arab-born, non-European, white-skinned um, uh, Jews who immigrated. They were treated like second-class citizens, but not by the religious groups, but by the secular, progressive, communist, or socialist Israeli groups that control the country and its founding. Um, so I think the point you made is a salient one uh, but one that gets lost in the noise because we are in a non-kinetic civil war. All right. Well, you know, this uh, that'll wrap up the podcast for today. That's really all the time we have. And we, we certainly look forward to our, our next discussion. And I want to thank uh, all of you for joining us. You can find our video casts on Rumble and our YouTube channels and our podcasts on Spotify and Stitcher. It's uh, Faith and Freedom Fighters. If you like the content of these uh, podcasts, please follow us and, uh, and please spread the word. And I want to thank all of you again for listening. And as always, may God bless you and may he continue to bless our country. Amen.